this is Mia, as I'm sure you have guessed, since you were on the Body Trauma Podcast. And this is just a quick note to say that this is our last episode of the first season of the podcast. So if you've been around this this year, um, if this is your first episode, thanks for being here. If you've been around, you know that I don't usually sit and talk to you. But today's going to be different because today I promised you all a special episode and it is a special episode because it is my episode. Um, it's my body trauma. It's my story with my body. And I guess we're just going to see how it goes. Honestly, I've been nervous about this episode for a while now, which is why I've just not recorded it because it feels very vulnerable and very real and very awkward. And I was kind of thinking, how am I going to do a podcast with no one asking me questions, no one prompting me if I stop and think and there's a long 30 second pause, do I cut it out? So I haven't really made a decision about any of those questions, as you may have assumed, but here we go anyways. Just because this is a podcast about trauma, body, emotional, otherwise, I am going to read our trigger statement just because we always do and because this could get hairy. So before we get started, I want to put a warning that this conversation is not censored and can include potentially triggering material. We also don't censor for cursing, but we will try to bleep out any numbers regarding weight or exercise activity. If at any time you feel yourself triggered or profoundly upset, please stop listening and take care of you and your mental health. That's honestly what's most important. So I guess let's jump right in. I know that I have, well, I mean, I've spent much of the past three years chronicling my trauma, my life, my eating disorder, my mental health, um, my ups and downs, low lows, high highs, all over the internet. And so I guess we would all think this would be super easy, but... I mean, it's still coming from a deep place. It's still me talking about things that are difficult in my life. And so, no, I don't feel particularly ready for this, I guess you could say. But I would say that, well, I mean, we're talking trauma here. We're not talking my eating disorder. I mean, we are talking about my eating disorder, but we're also talking about the trauma I've experienced in my life starting at an early age. And I think the first physical and emotional trauma that I experienced was birth. Um, Not to make that sound super cheesy, but I was actually born with crack cocaine in my system. Um, My mother did drugs while she was pregnant with me, and I was born on drugs. And If you know anything about babies born on drugs, they tend to have very low APGAR scores. They tend to not pick up on things as quickly. There's fetal alcohol syndrome. There's a lot of things that can go wrong when you engage in substances while you're pregnant with a baby. And this is by no means me lecturing anyone. Um, It's just me informing you. But I was born on drugs. And because 
I was born with drugs in my system. I was not allowed to go home when I left the hospital with my mother. Um, I mean, also at this point, we were in California in Berkeley. And my grandmother only found out that my mother was pregnant when she was about six months pregnant. She showed up at her workplace and just said, hey, I'm pregnant. And that was how my grandmother found out that my birth mother was pregnant with me. And she didn't hear from her again until my birth father called her saying um, that my mother or my birth mother was in labor and for her to get to the hospital. Um, so by no means was my grandmother ready for me to come into the world. I don't think anyone was ready for me to come into the world. And I think that that, that emotional environment can be traumatic by itself. So I was born, wasn't allowed to go home to the, wasn't allowed to go home from the hospital with my mother. So my birth mother and I ended up going home with my grandmother to live in her living room until things were sorted better. I don't even know. I, I mean, I honestly don't know because no one tells me much. And because I think by now a lot of it's been passed over and forgotten. And also just, I wasn't an adult at the time. So no one, <laughs> really took into my like no I guess people took my needs into consideration obviously but people didn't take my emotions into consideration so I lived at my grandmother's in my grandmother's living room my birth mother until um I was two weeks old and we went for my first doctor's visit and for all I know, the doctor's visit went fine. I mean, I love my first pediatrician. She's amazing. I still know her. Um, but when we left the doctor's appointment, we didn't go home. And my grandmother realized that we had not come home. And she set out to find out where we were. And to put it shortly, because I don't know the details. I don't want to get them wrong. I don't want to give you guys the wrong information. Basically what I know is I was taken to a drug house and I was, they attempted to hide me so that my grandmother couldn't get me. Um, but luckily one of the men there, maybe even one of the women, because I don't know the whole story, took pity on my grandmother and my aunt, my great aunt, who were both there and gave me to my grandmother. And ever since that day, I've lived with my grandmother. My grandmother is my mother, my adoptive mother, my mother, mother, my grandmother. Um, she's a lot of things. Um, she wears a lot of hats. There was a good little period in middle school where she tried to get me to call her Grom because she didn't like that I called her Graham instead of mom. So she signed cards Graham slash mom for a while until she just got fed up with it and started signing things Grom. Luckily, I got her off that trend, and we are back to Graham. But, let's see, from there, where did we go? My godmother, which I'm sure if you guys have been around since 2016, 2017 on my page, you would know who my godmother is, because she passed away at the end of 2017. 
um, BB. And BB was Graham's best friend. And Graham was basically raising a baby. They attempted to put me into foster care. They attempted to find someone to adopt me. Um, and eventually Graham just decided no one was good enough for me and she was going to raise me. Um, of course, family situation as it was, adoption wasn't an option because my birth mother was upset, my birth my birth father was upset, so Graham just decided to raise me. And I think after a little while of Graham trying to raise me as an infant and also work full-time and etc., etc., BB decided that she was moving in with us. And so here I was, little tiny me, being raised by my 81-year-old godmother and my maybe they were they were she was 80 so my 80 year old godmother my 60 year old grandmother and I think from that day I just grew up with such an old soul because my parents were so old just like even older than like your grandparents are when you're born usually and I was never really afraid of their death because I was just constantly waiting for it to happen and I guess I also want to say I was never afraid of life um until further on but I think I just grew up in a very interesting way and so I spent Christmases with them I mean I spent my whole life with them but my Christmas memories are with them and fondue and all of their older friends you know, at our house for the holiday, and my birth mother really wasn't in the picture. Um, I mean, I think in this, there were other traumas such as being one of the few black kids in school, um, learning what being black even was, and um, I know I've spoken on my page recently about you know, every Martin Luther King Jr. day, we would go over to our family friend's house and they were like black, black, like they were like, we decorate our house with black art. We have black totems. We have wood carvings of black art. Like they were black, black. And they would sit us down, me and their son, who was like, a year younger than me, um, we would all sit down and, well, we, I don't know if we'd all sit down. The two of us kids would sit down and we would watch, um, Eyes on the Prize, which is a very, very, very long series. Although one could possibly watch it in one day. I've seen the whole thing in pieces, but we would watch that and we would focus and think about, um, the civil rights movement what it meant to be black in America throughout the years. We would just learn about the experiences of our people. And I mean, I think I can safely say that most white kids don't grow up with that experience, don't grow up with that in their face once a year more. Um, in the winter, we'd celebrate Christmas, like I said, but we would also gather with our black friends draped in kente cloths and we would celebrate Kwanzaa and I knew all of the rituals of Kwanzaa. Um, my name was the fifth day of Kwanzaa. So of course I always got to light the candle that day. Um, 
people were constantly reminding me that my name means purpose. And yeah, I just, it was just such a part of my growing up, my life. Graham would come to school, teach the kids about Kwanzaa. The kids all thought it was cool. Um, I ended up taking that on later in high school. Um, and yeah, I've always been educational about my roots to a certain extent. Um, I guess what comes up next on the list of traumas, and I will be honest, I've blocked out quite a bit of my childhood, so I can't speak to a ton of things, although sometimes it's easier if someone says something and it prompts me, which is one of the reasons why I was worried about not having someone to prompt me, but we're doing our best, which is all we can do. But I think the next big trauma was just me trying to have a father. And my father was a cross-country trucker, and so he was never really in town for long. He didn't stick around very long. Um, he was He was never married to my birth mother, so he was never tied to my family or me. Um, he ended up having, I think three other kids across the country and so he was never around and I think the last photo that I have with him was 1996 when I was four so it's been a minute and I just so desperately wanted a father in my life I think I was very preoccupied constantly about having the usual things that go in someone's life like seeing my friends with their dads on Father's Day always just, like, broke my heart, and so I wanted a father. And seeing my friends with their mothers on Mother's Day and their grandmothers also broke my heart. And I think I just took on this this perceived identity as this orphaned child. Even though I was surrounded by my biological family, I, I just felt like I didn't belong. And I think that that messes with you. And I think that it keeps you from being vulnerable and open because why would you trust the people that you don't belong with? So I definitely felt that my father didn't have time for me. And so I sort of tried to write him off. Um, I believe the courts mandated that he visit me a certain amount of time if I were not, if he wanted to keep me from being adopted by my grandmother, he had to come visit me. And I, I've been told, I've blocked this out, that we would get ready for him to come visit, for him to come pick me up for the day, for him to come see the family. And he just never show up. Um, and I think me being the very stronger outer shell person that I am, definitely put on a front that it was okay. I was fine. Um, but I think each time it just dug a little bit deeper until I just didn't want any part of him anymore. And so I froze out any kind of contact from him. I got adopted, which was a great day. That was actually a really great day. Um, I like, I think my third grade teacher I think it was third grade. I'm pretty sure it was. Um, she like got me a present. And I remember this one kid saying like, why don't we all get presents? 
And she just turned to him and said, Jesse, when you get adopted, you can have a present too. Um, and I don't know, I just felt so special to be like held in a place of honor that day. And the judge was great with me and I got like a little stuffed animal and, um, yeah, I just felt like very wanted in that moment. Um, and then also not wanted, obviously, because my father didn't even show up at the court for my adoption. So I froze him out and it took me a good couple years between third grade and fifth grade for me to come back around to this option of even wanting to have a father in my life potentially. Um, and I had started writing him letters saying that I wanted to see him, saying that I was open to having him in my life. Um, and unbeknownst to me, he died at that time. So I will never know if he got my letters, if he knew that I had forgiven him, whatnot. So basically a month later, I found out that he died. It was in a very traumatic way. And I think that just started this massive upset in my body, just trauma after trauma. After that, I found out that my birth mother was not my grandmother's only child. And my aunt came back into our, well, didn't come back into our life because she was never in our life, but she came into our life and upset everything and took what, I had perceived as my little family of my godmother, my grandmother and I, and suddenly it got warped by new family, new grandkids, um, new aunt, and I just, I don't think I handled that well, let's put it that way. Um, and then at the same time, I got into a rift with my therapist that I had been seeing since kindergarten where I felt like I could no longer trust her. And I think if there had been any person in the entire world at that point that I would have trusted with a teaspoon of my emotions, it would have been her. And also at the same time, my birth mother um, was going into sober living. She had gone through um, rehab facilities. We had visited her. We had visited her in them, which had been traumatic on its own. Um, and all of these at once, I just, I think my only reaction to be able to cope with it was to start eating. And that's literally what I did. I started finding snacks. I started finding candy. I started eating chips. And it's not like I wasn't eating these things before, but I was sneaking them I was eating them when I was at therapy so that my family wouldn't know. Um, I think sixth grade, which was last year before we moved from California, my family decided to let me walk the like, I don't know, five blocks maybe from my school to therapy by myself. And there was a 7-Eleven on the way. And I would always go in to that 7-Eleven and I would get French onion sun chips, juicy fruit gum, and um, strawberry kiwi Gatorade. And I would always get those every day. Um, well, not every day, sorry, every week. 
on Thursdays before therapy and I would eat that. Um, and while these weren't like what, what might be considered, and I hate determining what's considered a binge and not a binge, but that was my, at that point for me, binge eating. Um, and it was definitely emotional eating, 130 billion percent. And that's just what I did to cope. And I started to gain weight. I was pretty much a, I hate saying normal sized child because that is the biggest bullshit ever, but I was not a fat child. Um, I was athletic. I was, I had little knobby knees. I really did. Um, my elbows stuck out. I think my belly had like a little rounded pooch, but like what little girl's belly doesn't like, unless they're like, I don't know, junior Olympics, five-year-olds. I feel like most kids have like a little pooch in their belly. And so I did not look fat. I wasn't fat and I started to gain weight. I don't think at that point it mattered to me. I think at that point the food mattered more than any bodily shape could matter. And I think that's also because I was still so consumed with the whirlwind that was my life at that point. Um, I did not have time to focus on my weight. Um, I guess, I guess me, little me, I was just like, I don't have time for that shit. So I didn't have time for that shit. Um, and yeah, I just started gaining weight. Not a lot at that point, but we ended up moving to Nebraska that summer after sixth grade against my wishes. So all of these, I'm not naming these as like, this was trauma here and that was trauma there, but like, I'm walking you through some of the traumas in my life, um, that had a stinging and lasting impact on my body, whether that is an emotional impact, a physical impact, whatever it is, it impacted me somehow. So I'm not naming them as trauma. I'm assuming that you all are understanding that it's all trauma and trauma looks different for each person at different times and you are valid in what you think your trauma looks like. So move to Nebraska. That was a hot mess for the sake of my family. One day finding this podcast, I'm going to keep some of my thoughts to myself, which means I've probably already said too much, but I will say that my aunt and I did not get along and it felt hostile to me. And the school that I transferred to from being in a private K through 12, no K through eight, um, school in California in a diverse part of California to moving to a red state in Nebraska with segregation to an extent all around um, and being a black kid in a white school with a very powerful in terms of the school environment um, family I just I got a lot of bullying from a lot of other kids I didn't feel a part of things I did you know find my passion for theater 
I did find my passion for music. I mean, I think I already had those passions, but I think there's a different availability in a public large junior high school than there is in a private K through eight. So I was able to like be in plays that were like pretty good scale plays. And I was able to do show choir, those sort of things that I wasn't able to do in California. So those were good, bad, the other. Basically, it was just me trying to get through to the next thing. And the way I was getting through it was I was eating. And because I was eating, I was gaining. And I wasn't in that safe space of a majority of kids I'd known since kindergarten were surrounding me and knew me for who I was and not my body size. I was now in a new situation with all these new kids and so many really thin girls and so many thin blonde white girls that were the popular kids. Um, I just felt so much like I just didn't belong. Um, and my body felt like more of a barrier to me than it had previously because I had put on weight and I was experiencing life in a fat body for the first time. Um, which I think also at the same time we're talking this happening, you know, a year, year and a half into puberty. So your body's already changing on top of that. So you already feel like you don't belong and then your body changes and it betrays you. And where do you fit then? So I was feeling all of those things and I basically just fought through seventh and eighth grade to get to high school. And my grandmother's and my relationship had always been tense. Ever since I was a kid, I would have emotional blowups. Like, I mean, I think in hindsight, like the fact that I was just keeping all of my emotions locked down every moment of every day, it just isn't possible to do that for that long without exploding. And so I was consistently exploding, but I was containing myself enough that when I did explode, I exploded at my grandmother and really no one else. And I think I must've thought her as safe enough to explode at her. So, I mean, praise her for dealing with me because in hindsight, some of those explosions, I would have gotten rid of me. So I'm glad that she kept me around, but and eighth grade, seventh and eighth grade, we just exploded each other so consistently all the time. And it just felt like I couldn't live in that house anymore for both of our sakes, for both of our sanity and our safety. It just wasn't going to work. And so I sent myself to boarding school. I applied to boarding schools. I picked the boarding schools I wanted to go to. I visited one, visited one, um, and, you know, I got into some, didn't get into others. It's a lot like college, but I did end up getting into one in Colorado and I went there for all four years. And I honestly say that I did not feel homesick until spring break of senior year. That was the first time that I remember 
going back to school after a break and not wanting to leave. Every other break before that, I was so happy to be rid of my family. I just wanted to live amongst people who didn't know my backstory, didn't, you know, feel pity for me, because that's, I think, how I felt. Um, saw me just as, like, a different person outside of my family. And at the same time, like, when you're fat, you don't always fit in. You don't always have friends. You don't always have people who want to hang out with you. Um, and I remember, like, physically hiding food. Um, I remember physically hiding food, and I remember being so ashamed of my body. And, like, I remember being afraid that people would find out that I had my period. And so, like, I mean, I haven't really told anyone this. It feels weird. But um, I would, like, hide all of my tampons in a plastic bag in my closet which in hindsight is very unsanitary, but I was so afraid that people would find out that I was like on my period that I like wouldn't go to the bathroom and like throw my tampons away in the trash cans like everyone else did. I like stuffed them in plastic bags in my closet and then I hid them under my bed. And at the end of the school year, when we were moving me out, we pulled just like trash bags and trash bags and so many trash bags of just trash out of my room um from under my bed and from my closet and I remember because it was my family that moved me out I remember my family finding those bags of tampons and just being utterly just like like I don't even know what the word is just like mortified I think that's the word I was just mortified and I was so ashamed and it wasn't like, Nia, what's wrong with you for feeling this way about your body? Like, why are you feeling this way? Let's talk about this. Let's, you know, see how we can, like, fix this or how we can, like, make this better or, like, make it so that you are not so ashamed of your body and, like, terrified. It was like, you're such a bad person for doing this. Why are you doing this? So I just, like, continued <laughs> to internalize that, except... I knew that what I was doing was inappropriate and that I couldn't do it or else people would hate me more. So I stopped doing that after freshman year. But I think that constant and just like vehement shame of my body stuck with me and still sticks with me. Um, I did a lot of like exploring with my sexuality in high school and learning about my body from like a sexual perspective, which honestly I had done for many years, but I think there's a difference when you're a high school kid, the internet is new, you have access to chat rooms with adult men and you explore them. Um, and I remember I would chat with these men and at one point in the summer after that year, my grandmother found out. She took my computer away from me. It was a hot mess. But once again, because it wasn't like, let's talk about what's going on. It was just like, you're a bad person. 
like they gave me back my computer after a few months and I just did it again, but on, but on speed. Um, and I mean, gosh, like we don't have to go into all that trauma because I don't even know if I'm ready to talk about that, but let's just say it led to a lot more shame around my body, a lot more shame around food, a lot of insecurity around food. Um, a lot of insecurity around men. On top of that, I was in a place where I was surrounded by thin white girls with, you know, quote unquote, perfect bodies. And I wanted my body desperately to look like theirs. And so I was attempting to diet. I was trying not to eat all of the french fries at every meal but at the same time I just wanted the french fries so bad and at the same time like you know you're living away from your family no one's going to stop you and say you're eating too many french fries they're just gonna walk by so like there was no control on my food except for these just like mental walls that I just like set in front of myself and that was when I became very conscious of like food, my body, my weight, um, numbers just running through my head all the time saying, I can't eat this. I can't eat that. I can't eat this on this day. I just had it. Um, that sort of thing. And I mean, gosh, was that not the mental game of my life? Like, oh gosh, like wanting all of the mini egg rolls, but you know, my eating disorder in my brain telling me don't have the egg rolls. The egg rolls are bad for you. The egg rolls make you fat. When you're fat, nobody likes you. Um, gosh, that was, that was horrible. Um, and I didn't know that was what was going on at the time. I just thought I had no self-control. I had no willpower. (sighs) Why was I wrong? Um, but I would say that my eating disorder, which started in fifth grade, like I said, with the binging, but it came to a severe point when I was dieting more extremely. Is that a word? I think that's a word. It is a word because my senior class messed up the word extremely on our t-shirts, which is why I know it's a word and I know how to misspell it. Um, But... I was dieting senior year and we had this one teacher who was dieting at the same time and she was in a fat body and I remember feeling comfortable with her because she was in a fat body like me and feeling like like maybe not everything's wrong with me if someone else looks like me but also knowing that, like, she was dieting. So, like, if she's dieting, I should be dieting. And if she's dieting, it's okay that I'm dieting because I need to lose the weight. Um, and we, it was me, trigger warning. I mean, there's already trigger warnings in the beginning. So if you're listening, you're proceeding with your own caution. But I'm giving you another trigger warning for diet talk. Um, she told us that she was doing the master cleanse and my friend in the dorm and I had never done the master cleanse. And 
we had told some other girls that we were doing the master cleanse and they were like, oh, oh, it's so great. Like I do that before my modeling shoot. It helps me lose like X amount of pounds, like a pretty good X, um, like as in a large X, but like within like 10 days or something. Um, and so we thought, Hey, if she does it and she's doing it and she's an adult, this must be okay. And so, you know, we went to Target on our Saturday run. We bought our lemons. We bought our maple syrup. And we had our little Nalgene's. And that Monday, we started doing the Master Cleanse. And, I mean, I see it now as horribly disordered. But at the time, I saw it as the Holy Grail. Um, and I have this thing, and I've talked about it with multiple dietitians and therapists, but that which apparently is not super common, but when I restrict food through like like restrictive eating, um, I actually don't get hungry and I also don't want to put anything in my body. So I restrict liquids as well, which is very dangerous. Please don't do it. Um, and so not only was I not eating, but I physically was not thirsty. And so I wasn't drinking as much of the master cleanse juice, whatever you want to call it, lemonade. That's what they called it. I wasn't drinking as much of the lemonade as I was supposed to. Whereas like we were supposed to be drinking like two to three Nalgene's of this lemonade a day. I was drinking like half a Nalgene and and we were supposed to be drinking, like, the same amount of those Nalgene's in water every day on top of the lemonade. So I was drinking, like, nothing. Like, I was forcing myself to drink the amount that I did. And, I mean, gosh, like, my body just... I mean, I think it probably just shut down on me. Like, I... I mean, it's a mental game, right? I think that's what everyone was telling me. It was, like, a mental game of, like if you get past day three, you're good. And so I remember the first like three days, just miserable. My brain was like on fire. Like I just wanted food so bad. And, you know, I chalked it up to, I'm addicted to food. Um, you know, food's unhealthy for me. I'm snacking all the time. Um, really this is what I need to like show myself some discipline I'm doing with other people. I don't want to let them down. Like we were getting up in the morning, going to the gym and I had like given my Tupperware container full of snacks away to the friend who was doing it with me so that I wouldn't like sneak and eat snacks in my room. And I just felt so trapped because there was food everywhere. There was the dining hall. There was, there was snacks in the dorm at night. There was, Oh gosh, the Chinese club was making dumplings in our dorm. And I remember lying on the couch crying, like audibly crying because I wanted dumplings so bad. They weren't even my dumplings. I think I would have taken them. Um, and everyone said, just get through day three. It'll be better. I promise you, it doesn't get better. You know why? Because your, your brain wants fucking food. Your brain is doing whatever it can do to get you to want food. And the one thing it can do is it can make you think about fucking food. So no, it doesn't get better after day three. It's not like a magical, like weight has been lifted off your back. No, 
it fucking sucks. Um, and, like, even in those moments when, like, you know, my pants were starting to slip off of me, I had lost that much weight. And, I mean, of course, it's probably water weight. I don't know why anyone even cares if it's water weight or not. It's still affecting your body. But I had lost enough weight that, like, my clothes were not fitting right. And I was calculating in my head, like, if I didn't master cleanse for this many months, I'll lose this much weight. It'll be good. No one, I mean, never mind that it's not sustainable. Um, and then, of course, in the next moment, I was like planning what I would eat on, you know, the last day of the master cleanser, not the last day, the day after the last day. So, what happened was we were doing this right before prom. We thought this would be great, we'll fit in our prom dresses, which is stupid because my prom dress was bought to fit my body, anyways. Um, but it came down to the last day of the master cleanse and I had to go to the nurse for medication anyways. And I went to the nurse and she gave my meds and she was like, okay, just hang on for a minute. And I was like, okay. And she waited until everyone was gone and she called me back and she said, I can smell ketones on your breath. And I had no idea what that meant. Um, I'm sure we all know what keto is now. So we know what ketones are, but essentially it is your body burning fats I think I haven't even looked it up in a while but it's a fat burning state but she said my breath smelled like death um I smelled like I was dying and it was bad enough that she smelled it from like however far apart she was from me and I told her you know well my friend and I and you know miss what her what whatever her name was um are doing the master cleanse and it's been really great. I've been losing all this weight. Um, and I just feel like so good, but like, you know, I really want to eat food. And she said, okay, well, we're gonna have to take your blood sugar. I don't even remember what it was. Um, and she called my grandmother and my grandmother, I think said something along, along the lines of like, well, why aren't you eating? You should start eating. There was not, in other words, I think, I think in my entire eating disorder journey, the only people to be active, like actively concerned about my eating disorder that I did not concern myself by telling someone I had an eating disorder were those nurses. And I remember they were like, well, you need to eat. So they gave me these peanut butter crackers. And I was like, I'm not supposed to eat, like, right away. Like, they say online, because, you know, we're doing everything we can offline, or online. And, like, they say on there you're supposed to, like, you know, wean yourself off of it because your stomach's not in good shape. In other words, for those of us not listening, you're restricting so bad that you need to be refed. <laughs> in case you were curious what that really means in non-diet talk. Um, and they were like, you'll be fine. Just eat these peanut butter crackers. This is an example of medical professionals not knowing how to handle eating disorders. They did the best they could. Thank goodness for them. But I really should have been fed like something that my body could handle at that point. And so I remember just like scarfing down these peanut butter crackers, probably the best food I've ever eaten in my entire life. And I thought I was fine. I mean, I was fine, but you know, my body wasn't used to solid food and I ended up, um, just like in terrible stomach pain, like for a few days, 
it, it, it was a couple days after that I like basically binge ate all this Chinese food before we went to prom we went to prom I was like holding up my dress because my dress didn't even fit me at that point but you know probably thought it was a great thing um and then I think a day after prom my stomach finally hit me all the food I'd been eating just it wasn't able to handle it and so I was just an excruciating stomach pain for like the whole night um while my body was trying to like pass food that it had not had to encounter for days um and so yeah I think that was probably the first like if not red flag because I think we've been throwing red flags for years but that was like I don't even know that was like a freaking red lit up neon sign that said stop the fuck what are you doing um and nobody not me not anyone else saw it right in front of them um went to college in california and um was doing pretty much the same thing i remember sleeping through the day trying to just sleep for 24 hours so that you know i could say that i hadn't eaten for 24 hours and i mean your body doesn't know that it's 1201 I remember Googling, how does your body know when it's been 24 hours? Like, your body just knows that it hasn't had food. <laughs> um, it needs food. And that's why it's telling you that it wants food. And you not listening to it is you listening to your eating disorder. And I think at this point, I didn't even realize that I had an eating disorder. I think I realized that something was wrong. Yes. But I didn't realize that the words eating disorder applied to me. Um, I spent a good amount of my freshman year on Blogger. I mean, Blogger is not even a thing anymore, really, but I spent it on Blogger talking to thin girls, very thin, thin girls who had anorexia in the pro-Anna space. And we spent our days blogging, texting, talking about the food that we wanted to eat but we weren't going to eat um I spent a good amount of my time encouraging them not to eat and then eating myself and feeling shitty about myself because I wasn't losing weight at the rate that they were um I had all of my goal weights laid out on the front of my blog like like I think if even if I weren't a medical professional now, like I'm not, but I mean, like, even if you were a medical professional and you saw that in today's world, like you, I hope would be concerned about what that person was doing and why that person was thinking that way and why that person was writing down every calorie they put in their body and why they were counting their weights down to like the nth degree. <laughs> um, and that's what I was doing. I was doing, everything the exact same way that the thin girls were doing but I was in a fat body so in my head I was just like I'm doing weight loss they're doing anorexia once I reach their weight then I can officially say I have a problem and then I'll be concerned but until I reach their weight I don't really have a problem I'm just trying to lose weight like that makes me so mad now that, that I was allowed to think that way. 
that that's what I was allowed to think and that it was backed up in the world around me. You know, like, gosh, like that just annoys me so fucking much. Um, sorry, I'm like a little congested. Um, but yeah, so I remember, I think I talked about this recently on a podcast, but the summer after my freshman year, which actually in January of that year, I had this major traumatic thing happen to me that I'm just not going to go into details about because we don't have time and I'm not comfortable. So had a major sexually related trauma that caused me to spin out and just binge eat consistently, constantly, every day for months. And I think at a certain point, the beginning of that summer in May, I realized that this was not sustainable. This wasn't working. I was so upset with how much weight I had gained and was gaining. Um, and I remember like looking up treatment centers for eating disorders. Um, I can't remember the forethought behind that. It's not there, but that's what I was looking up and Gosh, like, I found this treatment center in Minneapolis, because that's where I was going to be that summer, and I was just like, I just want to go there, I just want to do their day program, I can make it work with my summer program. Newsflash, no, I couldn't, but that's what I told myself, um, and I just wanted to go to this program, but, you know, insurance and accessibility to care, I didn't know how to tell anyone that I thought I had an eating disorder, because I didn't want them to just, like write it off is oh Nia just has that overeating problem which had been the case previously um and so I kept it to myself and I remember at one point during that summer like we were at some sort of festival and we walked past the treatment center and like I don't know but it just felt like such a missed opportunity like it just felt really bittersweet um that like I couldn't go there and that, like, I felt like I needed help, but, you know, maybe I didn't. And I'm not saying maybe I didn't now. I'm saying in my mind, maybe I thought I just, like, maybe I didn't really need help. And I think later that summer, I brought up to my grandmother when I was home that there was this IOP program in Nebraska and could I go? And her response was just sort of to say, like, well, why don't you just um, go to Overeaters Anonymous? Which, if anyone knows what Overeaters Anonymous is, it works for some people, but honestly, for a lot of people, it is so triggering, and it just encourages more restriction, which is the opposite of what helps eating disorders. So, I was recommended something that ultimately would not help me, ultimately silenced me, and this was in 2011, I ended up going through so much more additional trauma all of this time thinking, I don't really have an eating disorder. I'm doing okay. Um, we're just not going to talk about it. We're not going to think about it. Um, yeah, thinking like, you know, oh, I had an eating disorder in the past. Like, I would tell people like, oh, I used to have an eating disorder. And then, you know... A week later, I'd be at Subway crying in a booth because I couldn't eat a sandwich. Like, 
that's not someone who had an eating disorder. That's someone who's actively in it and maybe getting minor relief Monday through Friday, but it's hitting them Saturday, Sunday. At least that's what that is in my opinion. And it was for me in my case. So I actually experienced another sexually related trauma in those years. Didn't tell anyone about it. Um, kept it to myself, ate around it, kept eating, um, kept dieting, kept eating. It was just like this yo-yo pattern left, right, all around every day, every month, year after year. And it took me until September 2016 to get brave enough to Google eating disorder support again which is, I mean, I'm sure you guys can count. That's, what, like five years after I had originally Googled it? Like, it took that long for me to think maybe I really have a problem again and to be, like, somewhat validated and believe in myself. Like, like if I hadn't believed in myself and I wasn't, like, a super stubborn person, like, would I have ever Googled it again? Nobody knows. But I did Google it. I found... A support group that was like 15 minutes away from me maybe even less and this was on Tuesday thank goodness the group was on Wednesday because I think if it had been on Friday I would have talked myself out of it by then I went to that group and literally that group changed my life and I know how fucking cheesy that sounds but I attribute all of my recovery every day since then to that day going to group. Um, and it's not even like the group. I mean, we joked around and called it life-changing. I think it's a life-changing group. But I think it was also the fact that, like, the people in that room didn't question whether or not I did have an eating disorder. They just treated me as someone who belonged. And there was a fat girl in that room and she didn't act like she didn't belong. She acted like she did belong. I never saw her again. She never came back. But, I mean, I just, I don't know. That room in that space for that hour and a half changed my life that week. And I went back to that group every Wednesday after that. Um, and I went from being the one who needed all of the support to the one who was sharing, to the one who was giving advice and listening and, you know, helping, um, to the one that, like, people looked to when they brought their struggles into the room. And people would specifically say, like, oh, I brought this, but I really just want to hear what Nia has to say. Like, to feel like I belonged somewhere. And that I was important. I mean, that's deep, man. That's deep. And I'm still so thankful for that group. That group is the reason why I went to treatment in 2017. Um, gosh. That group is the reason for a lot of things. But, yeah, I went to treatment in 2017. I was in residential for... A week before they kicked me out due to my size and 
my people-pleasing attitude, um, which is bullshit, if you know anything about treatment. Bullshit. And, yeah, I think, honestly, if you want to scroll back through 700 posts on Instagram, you can pick up my story right there. Um, you can pick it up in PHP, and you can watch it through to today. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Am I doing much better today than I was on that Tuesday when I looked up eating disorder support groups? I will say yes. But also, like, 12 hours ago, I didn't really feel like I was any different. Like, like, Recovery is just so up and down and all around, swinging around, back to the beginning, back to the end, over to the side. You never feel like you're in the same place two days in a row. Um, and so some days I'm just like, God damn it, why am I like on day one right now? Like, how am I back on day one? Like, I'm binge eating the same foods that I was back then every single day. But, like, I'm not in the same headspace. It's different. It might feel like day one. It might feel like day's, like, negative 30. But my mind is in a different place. And because my mind is in a different place, I'm in a different place. Whether or not that's forward or backwards or off to the side... I mean, did we all watch the last season of Lost? We know about Flash Sidewayses. But, like, I don't know. I guess what I'm trying to say is, like, don't get down on yourself because you don't feel like you're in a perfect 500th step. Like, you know, you're, like your second year in recovery anniversary, you feel like you're on day one that doesn't mean shit because you're not on day one. Like this isn't like one of those treatment programs where you start over and you get a new chip and you lose all the progress that you've made because you didn't lose it. It's there. It still counts. It doesn't get erased. Like it's still valuable. You've learned from it. You've made adjustments because of it. It still counts. I mean, I haven't even talked about what recovery has been like in my body as opposed to a thin body. But, like, honestly, I'm coming up on an hour right now, and I was hoping I'd talk for 20 minutes. And it's 1.15 in the morning. So, for the sake of not rambling into your ears any longer, I'm going to say that is my story. That is a majority of my trauma. Yes, there's more. Yes, there's stuff I didn't mention. Yes, there's stuff I didn't have time for. Yes, there's stuff that I don't feel emotionally ready to put out there. Or I don't feel like I can put out there without crying into this microphone. And I really don't want to cry at 1.15 in the morning. Not that there's anything wrong with crying at 1.15 in the morning. I say that to you. I don't say that to myself. This is a problem. I am now rambling. I just want to say thank you all for listening. 
it has been great having you all along for the ride this season. I have loved getting to talk to you all just about every week. I've loved the guests that I've gotten to have on this podcast that I've gotten to speak with, that I've gotten to hear their stories, that I've gotten to share their stories with you all. Um, I love hearing from you all the impact that people's stories have on you, that this podcast has on you. And I love knowing that something that I've created has gone out into the world and touched someone, even if it's just one person. Like, once again, cheesy, but true. So, thanks for being here. Shall we close? I mean, should I just play the music? Alright. Thank you all for being here. I will see you in season two. See you next time. Thank you.